Well, his exact identity is unknown, but it seems that he was a European male aged around 35. Uh, He lived sometime between 1720 and 1810. And whoever he was, it's doubtful that in life he attracted as much attention as he now has attracted in death. His skull, cast in platinum, complete with a remarkably good set of teeth, has been encrusted with over 8,000 of the finest quality, ethically sourced, brilliant cut diamonds. And his skull, of course, has been seen by millions around the world. It is, of course, Damien Hirst's latest artwork entitled For the Love of God. Uh, The title apparently was drawn from Hearst's mother's reaction when she heard what her son was planning next. (laughs) Now, inevitably, the art world is divided. One critic described it as a £50 million disco ball, whilst The Guardian described it as Hearst's redemptive masterpiece. Quote, the perfect artwork for an age of massive wealth and escalating art prices. Interesting, of the work, Hearst said that he wanted it to represent hope. He said he wanted to represent hope in wealth against death. The ultimate victory of wealth over death. And yet the reality is, death always wins against wealth. And neither inherited riches nor the self-made fortune of a lifetime's labour can do anything to prevent that inevitability. Of course, it's difficult for most of us to face up to that fact. Most of us are actually living in denial. Most of us think we'll live forever. In the title of another of Damien Hirst's famous artworks, the title of his infamous shark in formaldehyde, It is the physical impossibility of death in the mind of the living. Now, the Bible teaches us that true riches are only ever found in Jesus Christ. And yet the difficulty with that statement is that it easily becomes little more than a Christian cliché. The jealousy-tinged rhetoric of those who wish they had the comfort of religion and just a little bit more stuff as well. But if it's true, really true, that God was in history in Jesus, that in his life, death and resurrection, we can find undeserved riches and honour that lasts through all eternity. If that is true, really true, then it changes everything. Now, of course, if you're a genuine believer here this evening, you you will know that in your head, true riches and honour are found in Christ. And yet, if you're anything like me, you will struggle to really believe that, to trust it in your heart. Now, most of us can give the right answer. Now, the right answer that true riches and honour are only ever found in Christ. Most of us can give the right answer. But actually, most of us struggle to trust the right answer, don't we? And why is that the case? 
Because we're not really persuaded that what Jesus says is true. Now, of course, it's important to remember that the Bible is not always negative about worldly wealth or worldly honour. When Paul writes to the Corinthian believers, he reminds them that when they were called, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. So as Matthew and Anna head out to Uganda and work amongst people there, they'll work amongst many communities where there are those who are certainly not influential and of noble birth. The Bible says that not many people within the church are wise by human standards or influential. Not many were of noble birth. Not many, but some were and are. Some were wise by human standards. Some were influential. Some were of noble birth. And some, like Aquila and Priscilla, were at least relatively wealthy. And many then and now, in this country and in this church family, many have used their influence and wealth to greatly prosper the work of the gospel. In the Bible, the problem is not the possession of wealth. The problem is wealth's possession of us. And wealth's possession of us can be quite insidious. A creeping self-deception where a humble dependence on Christ gives way to a proud dependence on self. And of course, more alarming still, it can all be dressed up in the respectable clothes of middle-class Christianity. Now, such self-deception was a danger for the Old Testament people of God, just as it is a danger for the New Testament people of God. So standing on the edge of the Promised Land, God warns his people of the dangers of self-sufficiency. God says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. Be careful. Self-sufficient complacency isn't inevitable, but it is, the Bible warns, possible. See, on the one hand, there is, I think, a false guilt in material affluence. Now, some people mistakenly judge that anything other than material poverty is somehow unspiritual. But that is not what the Bible teaches. There's nothing inherently wrong with wealth, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And yet if there is a false guilt in material affluence, there is also a, a real and a very great danger. The danger that we begin to trust in God's good gifts rather than trusting in the good giver himself. So when the pressure's on, The first thing you reach for to solve your problems is a checkbook and not the prayer book. And at that point, of course, you're living in an unreality of your own making. See, in that respect, Damien Hirst is very definitely wrong. For wealth brings no hope in the face of death. And what all of us need and regularly need is a divine reality check. 
a true assessment of the way things really are. An assessment from someone who knows not only the way things appear on the outside, but actually the way things are in the attitudes of our hearts and minds. Which brings us to to the final letter in these series of letters in the beginning of the book of Revelation, to the church in Laodicea. Now there's every evidence to suggest that Laodicea was an influential city, famed for its financial success, for its commercial achievement, for its academic accomplishment, if you like. I found it utterly fascinating reading all the kind of historical reconstructions of the city, and it it makes for a very interesting reading for someone living in an affluent suburb of of Sheffield in the 21st century. Laodicea was, as one commentator put it, one of the richest commercial centres in the world. There were successful banks, there were prosperous businesses, there was even a famous medical school on the doorstep. And yet, whatever the accuracy of such reconstructions, actually the text itself gives every indication that the church at Laodicea was located in a wealthy and prosperous part of town. You see, verse 17 there was an alarming confidence in wealth within the church, never mind the surrounding culture, for some at least were saying, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. And it's to such a church as this that Jesus brings a divine reality check in verse 14. For here, you see, is a true word. Without encouragement or commendation, Jesus cuts to the chase, end of verse 14. For these are the words of the Amen. Or as we might say, the words of the one who tells it as it really is. The faithful and true witness. The one who's perspective is without error and blind spot for he is the beginning or the ruler of creation he he's been there since the outset so nothing gets past him undoubtedly this was a true word for the first century believers in Laodicea but for Jesus can say of them in verse 19 he says of them I know your deeds for them this was a true word And yet the Spirit clearly intended that this true word would be relevant for many more believers than this first century congregation in the Lycus Valley. For as with all the letters to the churches in Revelation, there is an exhortation to all God's people, verse 22. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This letter to Laodicea is relevant to us, either as a devastating diagnosis or as a very real and urgent warning. See, this may not be where we are as a church or where we are as individuals, but it could be. And if we are wise, we will hear what the Spirit is saying. See, if we listen rightly, Jesus' warning will not induce a false guilt, but it ought to shake a dangerous complacency. For here there is surely a wake-up call for the self-deceived who mistakenly assume when they read this, this could never be me. So Jesus delivers a true word. And that true word, verse 15, is a shocking verdict. Sometimes it's only shock tactics that make any difference, isn't it? 
Now, at one time, you could buy a packet of cigarettes with a somewhat anodyne warning, smoking can damage your health. But people carried on smoking regardless, so now the warnings are a bit more blunt. Smoking kills. But people carry on smoking. In 1991, the Enlightened Tobacco Company even launched a brand of cigarettes called Death. Black packaging, skull and crossbones, claiming to be the only brand that was completely honest about the dangers of smoking. But not even that stopped people smoking. In fact, there's evidence to suggest that the brand became a teenage icon of coolness. Yet, of course, now many countries are resorting to images instead of words. Shocking and graphic pictures of diseased lungs or oral cancer or premature babies or dead bodies. For sometimes it is only shock tactics that can awaken people from their desensitized slumber. And you know, verses 15 and 16 really are very shocking, aren't they? I know your deeds. That you are neither cold nor hot. I I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus says you're neither one thing nor another. Hot water cleans, cold water refreshes, but this insipid, lukewarm, neither one thing nor the other kind of water, it's it's disgusting. In fact, more than that, you're disgusting. So I'm about to spit you out. And of course, it's not quite what we'd expect of Jesus, is it? After all, Jesus is English, isn't he? You know, all that holy lamb walking on England's pastures green. Now, he's an English Jesus. And and verse 15, it's just not cricket, is it? I used to imagine for a moment that you're in first century Palestine and Jesus is visiting. And Paul, the vicar, has lined him up to preach. Now, give the staff team a rest and let's face it, he's got to be better than the old curate. Uh, Martin's put a notice in the notice sheet and this time at least the office have been inundated with offers of help. People are literally queuing up to have Jesus for dinner. So for the chosen few, Jesus arrives and dinner begins. Uncomfortably, there's rather little in the way of small talk. Uh, You've barely bitten into your bread roll when Jesus announces, I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now that would leave you choking on your mange too, wouldn't it? See, I suspect the reaction amongst the dinner guests would be various, but at the very least, to start with, it would be denial. Did he really say what I thought he said? He did. He can't really mean me, though, can he? He must be talking about somebody else. You know, just like challenging sermons are always perfect for someone else, so Jesus' shocking verdict must surely be meant for everyone else except me. But then for some, denial will give way to offence. And the table will be left in disgust. And the door will be slammed. And an uncomfortable silence will descend. 
But you know for the wise, for the wise there should at the very least be a hesitation. Why would Jesus say it if it wasn't true? Maybe he is right. Maybe he is right and he's right about me. Maybe I am neither hot nor cold. And maybe my half-heartedness about Jesus Christ is blinding me to the spiritual danger that I'm really in. You know, a little bit of religion is a very dangerous thing. Half-hearted nominalism, that is the opiate of the people. A true word. A shocking verdict. And then verse 17, a devastating explanation. You see, at one level, anyone can say something shocking. And in my experiences, most workplaces, and sadly most churches, have someone who very easily says things that are shocking. You know, most of us have in the communities we live and work a kind of character like Catherine Tate's outraged and outrageous liberty-infringed grandma. If you don't know it, you're not missing anything. But if shock tactics are going to be anything more than unpleasant and manipulative, they, they need to come with an explanation, don't they? Now, too much religious rhetoric is offensive rather than persuasive, but it is not so with Jesus. His words are uncomfortably persuasive. They're uncomfortably persuasive for they invariably come like a two-edged sword that penetrates to the very depths of our souls, exposing our self-deception and revealing the very depth of our need. And so in verse 17, Jesus exposes the heart of the problem. The insidious self-sufficiency of affluence, verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Now, I doubt actually that people in Laodicea were actually that brash about their material wealth. Now, of course, they could have been, but I think it's unlikely. Self-sufficient pride is usually more sophisticated than that. There are 101 subtle ways that we can let people know that we are well off without announcing it in the church magazine. Talk about your holiday plans or your home improvements or your kids' educational costs or even your giving to the church. It's code for. I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. You see, I think Jesus makes explicit what is implicit in the way in which these Laodicean believers were living. And note again, will you, that the problem was not wealth per se... The problem was independence and and self-sufficiency and material pride. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. And in the case of that kind of misguided and proud independence, Jesus tells it as it really is in verse 17. He looks at all this wealth and affluence and confidence and says, you are wretched pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus says you can have everything. You can have everything and really have nothing. 
You can have everything and really have nothing without a humble and committed dependence on Jesus Christ. For then even the rich are poor and the greatest intellects are blind. I know that's often not how we see it, but it doesn't make it any less true. You know, reality is not determined by my feelings. True riches and honour are only ever found in Jesus Christ. And when death comes, the ultimate reality check, then not even 8,000 brilliantly cut diamonds will be able to hide the eternal poverty that is ours without Christ. And yet Jesus says that his words are actually, verse 19, a loving rebuke. Those who I love, I rebuke and discipline. See, here is a true word. A shocking verdict, a devastating explanation, and verse 18, a wonderful promise. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. nakedness, And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. See, Jesus promises that true riches and honour are found in him. I've just been reading an interesting book by Professor Francis Collins. Collins is a um, world-renowned geneticist. He's the head of the hugely important and influential Human Genome Project. He's one of these guys who, you know, seems to be brilliant at absolutely everything. He, he began his academic career by gaining a PhD in physical chemistry before actually decided that wasn't quite for him, so he changed fields and trained as a doctor, and then eventually developed a, an interest, a kind of world-class interest in genetics. And as a scientist, he has been honoured by his fellow colleagues and politicians throughout the world. He's the forefront in helping to map the human genome. And because of that, he could doubtless demand the salary of his choice in the commercial sector. And yet the book tells of his journey to faith in Christ, of how he found true riches, not in the honour and praise of the world or in the salaries of the world, but in the forgiveness of this first century teacher from Palestine. In the book he tells of one particular striking event for him in this journey of faith or to faith back in 1968. He says this, Apollo 8 was the first manned spacecraft to orbit the moon. Frank Borman, James Lovell and William Anders travelled through space for three days that December while the world held its breath. Then they began to circle the moon, taking the first human photos of Earth rising over the moon's surface, reminding us of just how small and fragile our planet appears from the vantage point of space. On Christmas Eve, the three astronauts broadcast a live television transmission from their capsule. After commenting on their experiences and on the starkness of the lunar landscape, they jointly read the first ten verses of Genesis 1. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As an agnostic on the way to becoming an atheist at the time, I still remember the surprising sense of awe that settled over me as those unforgettable words reached my ears from 24,000 miles away, spoken by men who were scientists and engineers, but for whom these words had obvious, powerful meaning. A world-famous scientist, an agnostic on his way to becoming an atheist, and yet he discovered that true riches and honour are found not in the rewards or honour of the world, but in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus said to these Laodicean believers, buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And Francis Collins, as have thousands and millions down through history and across the world, came. And that same Jesus still says, come. He says it to you this evening, if you're not a committed believer. He says it to you if you are a believer, particularly if you are a believer in this passage. He says, come. Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you can become rich. How can we be anything other than fully committed or earnest, as verse 19 puts it? How how can we be anything other than fully committed if all that Jesus says and offers is true? How can we be neither hot nor cold? How can we be half-hearted or half-committed, proud and independent when all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus Christ? Are not the world's greatest trophies mere worthless trinkets compared to the reality of knowing God through Jesus Christ? And yet we still waver between two opinions, don't we? We neither really trust Christ and commit our all to him, nor do we completely reject him and kick this whole God thing into touch. We are often neither hot nor cold. Maybe we want the comfort, but never the cost. And yet astonishingly, In the midst of all our unbelieving prevarication, Jesus still says what he does in verse 20. In spite of all our half-heartedness, our lukewarmness, Jesus says what? Verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. He who has an ear, let him hear. Is that not truly astonishing? Whatever we say in practice, we are often lukewarm, half-hearted, uncommitted, and yet the king of the universe still invites us to eat with him. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And as you hear his voice, what what should you do? What will you do? See, Jesus says there is only one appropriate response, verse 19. Be earnest and repent. 
Now, following Christ can never be some sort of suburban middle-class hobby. Jesus is not a lifestyle accessory on a par with membership at the local gym. He is, verse 14, the ruler of creation. He is Lord, and and as such he demands that we we turn from that half-hearted sin of unbelief and trust that it is only in him that we will ever find true honour and wealth. It is possible that some of us will need to lose our material wealth to discover that true wealth is found in Jesus Christ. That was certainly the case for the rich young ruler in Luke 18. If our possessions have so possessed us, Jesus says that it is better to lose your entire bank balance than to stay wealthy and end up in hell. But for others, earnestly committing to Jesus will mean that we enjoy but hold lightly to the rewards and praise of this world. Comfortable homes, rewarding jobs, pleasant holidays, these and 101 other things are good gifts from a generous Heavenly Father. But as soon as we forget that true riches and honour are found in Christ, we are, whatever our earthly wealth, we are, Jesus says, wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. And if we know that true wealth and honour are found in Jesus Christ, then if we should lose everything, now if our GCSEs or A-levels are disastrous, if the business should go belly up, if illness should leave us unemployed and unemployable, if the pension fund should collapse and a lifetime's labour disappear in a stock market crash, all these things can go. And we can know that trusting in Jesus Christ, we are wealthy beyond the world's wildest imagination. For not only do we get to eat with the king of the universe, See the other astonishing thing that Jesus says in verse 21? Undeserved though it may be, those who trust Jesus Christ will one day, Jesus says, even sit on his throne. Well, let's pray, shall we?